Welcome back, everyone. This is Treks to Nowhere. In this episode, I will conclude the story of my journey at the 2018 Hard Rock 100. Rather than try to dig back through memories and reformulate my story, I've opted instead to mostly just read directly from my run report following the event. I feel that by doing this, you are all getting the raw and unfiltered vivid story that I put down in writing just days after my journey was over. So, sit back and enjoy my 2018 Hard Rock 100 story, as read from my run report. As I previously noted, I spent the week leading up to the run by spending as much time at altitude as possible and bagging several 14er mountain peaks. My partner and I spent three days in and around the Chicago basin, climbing 14ers. I tried to spend as much cumulative time as I could over 10,000 feet so that I would at least have some acclimatization before the race. Living where I did in New England at the time, I was rarely over 1,200 feet elevation, so as a flatlander, I knew I needed that precious time above treeline. Our intended plan was to arrive around noon on Wednesday before the race in Silverton. This way we could get settled in town, I could check in early, and there'd be no sense of urgency or rushing. The mandatory meeting wouldn't be until Thursday morning, and our Chicago Basin train was scheduled to pick us up at the Needleton Trailhead at about 11 a.m. on Wednesday, getting us back to town around noon. So we hiked the four miles down from our campsite up in the Chicago Basin back to the trailhead and waited for hours for the train to come. Eventually, we were greeted by a local resident who happened to be staying in her remote cabin near the trailhead. She informed us that she had received a message on her satellite messenger notifying her that the Silverton-Durango train had been shut down due to a massive mudslide onto the track from the heavy rains the night before. I asked her, so the train's not coming? What are our reasonable options then for getting back to town? She replied, well, honestly, probably your best bet is to just hike it back to Silverton. It's only about 13 miles along the tracks. Absolutely perfect. The last thing that my partner and I wanted to do after a big hiking and camping trip in the Chicago basin was to hike 13 long and hot miles along the tracks back to Silverton, a la stand by me. But without knowing anything about how long the train would be delayed, we figured we had no choice. The local was kind enough to fill up our water bottles so we at least had hydration to get us there. We also had one leftover dinner from our camping trip that we ate to keep us fueled. The hike back into town along the tracks ended up being closer to 14 miles, and it really beat us both down. It wouldn't seem like walking along railroad tracks would be all that hard, but it really is tough on your feet. The exposed sun didn't help either. This was certainly not how I wanted to be spending my taper rest day, but there was really nothing else we could do about it. In the end, it took us almost five hours to make the walk, and when we did get back to Silverton, it was already almost dinner time. We were both a bit grumpy, but after cleaning up in our van and getting a real meal in town, we felt much better. We eventually skipped out of town quickly in our van and camped up near Mollus Lake just to get someplace a little more remote and at higher elevation. On Thursday morning, we did come back into town early, and I finally started mentally putting myself into hard rock mode. 
I took some pictures around town, finally checked in and received my runner bag and bib, and then eventually took a seat for the mandatory runner briefing. There wasn't a whole lot of new useful information relayed at the meeting other than the common sense stuff, but it was still quite surreal to be sitting there among the other starters. I can still remember sitting at that same meeting in the previous two years, hoping that one day I would be on the other side. When the briefing was over, I scurried over to the Grand Imperial Hotel in order to sort my drop bags frantically. I had only about 30 minutes to get them all sorted and dropped off. With some quick thinking and help from my partner, I managed to get five drop bags dropped off in time and then had the rest of the afternoon to finally rest, something I probably should have been doing more the previous week. I had booked a nice room for the night at the Grand Imperial as I wanted to assure I'd get a comfortable night's sleep before the run as well, so there'd be no sleeping in our camper van. I also booked a room for the second night of the race on Saturday, hoping I'd be done in time to use it. I knew at the very least my partner could use it. So ultimately we didn't do too much Thursday night, and after a quick bite in town, we retired early so that I could get a full night's sleep. I woke up Friday race morning feeling quite calm. I suppose on some level I was excited, but my overall feeling was more of true contentment. I was eager to see the beauty along the course, but I didn't want anything to feel rushed. I knew in just a few hours I'd be out there experiencing it. I took a nice shower, put on my running clothes, while my partner popped down to the cafe to grab me an early coffee and cupcake. I dressed for lots of sunshine and warm weather but also had an emergency layer on hand, as well as afternoon rain gear in my drop bags. I also had a very small emergency headlamp as well in case it got dark before arriving in Ure. Near the start, I was somewhat surprised at the amount of people all flocking around, but considering the field was 140 runners and most had crews of at least two or three, I suppose it made sense. There also seemed to be a fair number of media folks mulling around as well taking interviews and recording video footage. I just kept looking over at my partner on the side, smiling. She could tell I was excited. I had spent two summers in Silverton as a Hard Rock aid station captain, watching these very runners leave town at the start of Hard Rock. I had always wondered what it would feel like to be among them. About 60 seconds later, the race director completed a 10-second countdown, and I began running down 12th Street and I knew exactly how it felt. It was bliss. I gave one last wave to my partner as I headed down the road to start my first big 3,000-foot climb up to Putnam and Cataract Ridge. I was practically giggling with excitement. Section 1. The Start to Chapman Aid Station, Mile 18 I ran along the streets of Silverton and up onto the first single-track trail at about mile two before the crossing of Mineral Creek. I ran this bit with famed ultra-runner Nikki Kimball, and we talked about Vermont quite a bit, her home state and my adopted part-time home state. The field was crowded in this single-track stretch, as expected, and I was simply trying to find a suitable pace. Running with Nikki, I was clearly going too fast. After crossing the very cold creek, I eased up a bit. Somehow I managed to find fellow Barkley finisher Blake Wood, and we hiked the entire climb up to the pass together. We traded some epic Barkley stories, 
research stories, grad school stories, and various other fascinating topics of all the places to be having a fun and scintillating conversation with Blake Wood. Why not on the first climb of Hard Rock, I suppose? I'll tell you, I'll never forget those first few miles. We made it above treeline and I was moving well. I could feel the altitude, but was managing okay. This first climb had a respectable 3,000 feet of gain and was a good primer for what was to come later. As I reached the top of the first pass, I had to stop for a bit to admire the magnificent views. The upper part of this first climb was all off-trail, so I realized that not many get to see the San Juans from this particular vantage point. Eventually, I ran along the Cataract Ridge over to Porcupine Pass with a huge grin on my face and then began what would be my first descent. The drop down to the first aid station at KT was only about 2,000 feet of descent and just over a couple of miles. It went quickly and I was rolling into the station in what seemed like minutes. I got my first taste of just how amazing the aid stations were going to be throughout the race when I feasted on super tasty avocado wraps and rice balls. It is important to note at this point that I was eating quite well and ravenously. I note this because later in the race, I essentially lost my entire ability to eat sufficiently, really costing me both time and energy. I left KT refueled and feeling great. I was eagerly looking forward to the next climb as it was both short at only 2,200 feet and would go right past the iconic and picturesque Island Lake. The start of this climb was moderate and slowly worked up the side of the mountain leaving KT. It was actually quite pleasant and I was thoroughly enjoying every moment of it. Weather still looked good and the mid-morning air felt great. After rounding a sharp turn in the course, we all began the big climb up to Grant Swamp Pass. Now, despite its rather unflattering-sounding name, this was one of the most spectacular places on the entire course. On the final pitch just before the pass, you run past the iconic Island Lake. I must have stopped in my tracks a dozen times just to look at it. It's really hard to describe in words just how magnificent it really was. The water was unnaturally blue, the sun was out, and the crisp morning breeze was just perfect. It was during this point of the race I was at one of the highest mental points of my run. There was some loose scree towards the top of the climb, but once on the ridgeline, I stopped for a long break to eat something and admire the views one last time. I paid my respects to the Joel Zucker Memorial that is perched on one of the highest rocks on the ridge and made my way over to the infamous descent on the other side. I knew from others' race reports that it was going to be steep, but wasn't quite prepared for just how steep. I looked down at the drop, looked over at a volunteer standing at the top and said, Wait, we go down that? She responded by simply saying, Welcome to Hard Rock. Have fun. Something that hadn't yet occurred to me by this point was that I realized after talking to several Hard Rock veterans along the way, that this year's course was completely 100% snow-free. This had never happened before during the history of the race and was due to a combination of the incredibly warm summer, very low snowfalls, and the one-week later start in July. What this meant practically was that on certain parts of the course where it is actually beneficial to have snow for the purpose of glissading down, 
you had to instead slide down rocky scree. I feel that this very likely made some steep sections along the course more difficult and slow going than they would have been had there been snow. Once the descent leveled out, I tried my best to get back into a suitable running pace, but found it difficult. I wasn't sure what my hang-up was, but I wasn't really running well. I would try to pick it up for a bit, but found I was completely sapped. I tried eating some of my carried food, but it just wasn't doing much. I decided to just not let it get me down, and instead, dial it back a bit and take it easy down to the Chapman Aid Station. I had a drop bag there waiting for me with lots of good food. Somewhere in this stretch, back below treeline and along a creek, I was running through some thickets of flowering plants. Things were going relatively okay, and then I was instantly struck with a searing pain in my left calf. I yelled loudly and the runner behind me immediately asked me if I was alright. I was confused as to what had happened. Had I catastrophically pulled a muscle? It didn't feel like that, though. It was more localized. It almost felt more like a... And then I heard three other runners behind me also scream loudly. Yep, we were all stung by yellow jackets that had been apparently hanging out in a group of some of the flowers along the water. It had been many years since I was stung, but I definitely remembered how unpleasant it was, especially right on my calf. We were still a good four or five miles from Chapman, so there wasn't much we could do. The sting really did light a fire under me, though, and I managed to pick up the pace over the next few miles. I was surprised at how long the pain of that dang sting would stay with me for the remainder of the day, though. When I did finally roll into Chapman, I took my time resting. I thought it would do me good to take a real and honest break as I had only stopped for about two minutes so far on the course at KT. I noticed, though, that I was already becoming indecisive at the station with what I wanted to eat. It was definitely too early to be getting picky about my food options. I should have been wolfing down everything in front of me, and instead I was lightly picking through little bits of things here and there. I knew this wasn't a good sign, but just wasn't interested in the food, even though I absolutely knew I had to be putting down those calories. This was a cycle that would compound throughout the remainder of the race, making me more and more lethargic. Section 2. Chapman to Telluride Aid, Mile 28 Leaving Chapman after a decent break, I felt much better despite the picky eating. I would be starting the next climb in the early afternoon to what would likely be thunderstorms. I was just hoping not to be caught on the next ridge during any lightning. The climb up to Oscars Pass would feature about 3,000 feet of consistently steep gain with an exceptionally steep bit at the very top. Even the course elevation profile shows this as a near-vertical straight line. This was probably the first really tough climb on the course, but I was eager and ready to tackle it. I put my head down and decided to keep my pace a bit slower so as to keep moving steadily and avoid what I call breathing breaks, when I stop for 10 to 20 seconds to rest and catch my breath. For the most part, this strategy worked well. The combination of the food at the station and a slower, more consistent pace kept me moving well all the way up above treeline. Once the pass was in sight at about 12,000 feet, I did start slowing again. I could tell that the time I had spent in Colorado before the race had helped me significantly with the altitude, but I still had trouble moving quickly once over 12,000 feet. 
every climb on the course, I noted this. As soon as I'd get above 12,000, I would start laboring again. Climbing up to Oscars, I struggled with the final 500 feet of the climb. But once on the top, I knew that I'd have a nice, long descent down into Telluride, with a very runnable Jeep road section for about three to four miles. The clouds were thick as I crested the pass, and it did rain a little bit on me, but the lightning stayed away. I figured by the time I was above treeline again after Telluride, the afternoon thunderstorm window would be over, so I likely dodged a big bullet. The descent from Oscars was quite pleasant. The upper basin was filled with wildflowers and sweeping single-track trail, some of the best I've ever run on. My smile came back quickly, and as I dropped in elevation and my oxygen levels increased, I felt a new sense of excitement. Once on the level road, I decided to shift gears a little and run the rest of the way into Telluride at a faster clip. It felt really good to move well, but I was also a little extra motivated to make it to Telluride because I had a sneaking suspicion that my partner was going to surprise me there. Our original crewing plan was for her to first meet me in Ure at mile 43. It's a really long drive to go all the way around to Telluride from Silverton, so we just planned to skip it. I had a drop bag there, so it was fine with this plan. But with that said, I still had a hunch that she might have made the drive anyway. It gave me a little extra zip in my steps, wondering if I'd see her in town. I finally turned off the jeep road and was directed across a large park field over to an enormous aid station extravaganza. This was certainly quite a different field than the remote KT or Chapman stations, but was welcome for sure. With no sign of my partner, I slowed my pace as I approached the ribbon chute leading up to the station. I called out my number for my drop bag, looked to my left, and then saw her standing there. I totally called it. I had the goofiest grin on my face and was ecstatic to just see her. I had realized that with the pace of hard rock, waiting until mile 43 to see your support could be well over 12 hours. I scampered quickly through the checkpoint and then sat down with my partner for a long break. She told me I looked great, although not necessarily feeling it. I told her stories about the run so far, trying to express in words just how lovely it was. And of course, the news of the bee stings that many of us were delighted to receive. Reluctantly, I did eventually get up and started to make my way out of the aid station. I knew that I had a very long 4,000-foot climb ahead of me that would not be easy, but it was also that climb that would culminate with a visit to Kroger's Canteen at the very top of Virginia's Pass. I was admittedly excited to experience the Canteen, as it's touted as being one of the most unique aid stations of any race in America a small station perched atop a 13,000-foot pass nestled into a rock wall with ropes and carabiners and staffed by a complete all-star cast of volunteers. To put into perspective just how special Kroger's Canteen is, there's actually a wait list just to volunteer at it. As difficult as the 4,000-foot climb would be up to Virginia's Pass, I also knew that once on the backside of the descent, I would have an incredibly long road section again that would offer me some very easy runnable miles. Section 3. Telluride to Ure, Mile 43. 
The climb up from Telluride was definitely long. I could tell I had over 30 miles on my legs at this point. I tried to focus on my goal, simply getting to Virginia's Pass and Kroger's. I made the mistake of watching my Garmin, though, too closely and became obsessed with my elevation gain. It's somehow akin to watching water boil. It only makes the climb go slower. Climbing up from Telluride marked my first real low point in the race, and it didn't help that it was also the hottest part of the day. After what seemed like hours, I finally popped out above treeline and could see the pass. It felt good to almost be there, and I picked up my pace a bit. As I approached the pass, though, I noticed that it didn't look like there was an aid station at the top. I figured that the people must just be around the backside and out of view. But it wasn't until I actually crested the pass and noticed that my altimeter was still short, and I wasn't actually on Virginius. I turned at the top and noticed the long trail continuing to contour around the mountainside up over to the next pass about a mile away. It was incredibly deflating, but also my own fault for not knowing the course better. That next mile was really tough, and I was in a grumpy mood the entire time. I tried to fight it off and remind myself of where I was, but I just couldn't shake it. When I finally did make it to the pass, though, and saw all of the volunteers cheering from their tiny perch, my spirits lifted. Blake Wood had caught back up to me at this point, and we hung out together at the aid station. I thanked the aid station captain and told him that I had waited nine years to shake his hand at Kroger's. We both laughed about it, and he suggested I not wait another nine to see him again. On the steep descent from the pass, the volunteers had strung up a climbing rope to help. This section was incredibly steep, even steeper than at Grant Swamp's Pass, and was one of the places that was made even more difficult by the lack of snow. Blake had noted that normally you can just glissade down the snow with minimal effort. Instead, we had to slowly descend while grabbing the rope. Once at the bottom of this section, though, and onto the Governor Basin Road, I was eager to start moving again. I knew I had a long ten miles of road into Ure, all entirely runnable. I passed through the governor's aid station, quickly refueled and hydrated, and moved on without any hesitation. As soon as I left, I picked up my pace and began casually jogging down Camp Bird Road for Ure. At my pace, I calculated that I'd make it to town well before dark, as I'd hoped. The miles went by fairly quickly and I enjoyed the nice change of pace from the steep ups and downs I had been dealing with all day. I also knew that when I left Ure several hours later, I'd be facing the biggest climb of the entire course, a 5,000-foot ascent up to Engineer Pass. After about five miles on this road, I finally passed a recognizable camping spot that I had stayed at a few days prior and knew that it was only about two more miles into town. Those last couple of miles were relaxing and reflective. I was happy I made it around the western half of the course, and in my mind, Ure marked a mental halfway point, even though it was really only 43 miles into the race. As I approached town, the course takes you along the Ure perimeter trail that follows along a cliffside and eventually through a low-ceiling rock tunnel. It was a fun little section to experience just before hitting the aid station. I did finally pop out into the outskirts of town and I could hear the cheering from the station. It was still well before dark and I was excited to take a well-earned break and chat with my partner.
As I noted, leaving URA, I would be presented with the biggest single test of the entire endeavor, a 5,000-foot climb up to Engineer Pass along the Bear Creek Trail, but then immediately followed by a climb up to the highest point on the course, Handy's Peak, at over 14,000 feet. The good news with all of this is that once I made it over Engineer Pass and to the very next aid station at Grouse Gulch, I'd be picking up my good friend and fellow Barkley runner Travis to help pace me over Handy's. I was really looking forward to some good company through the night. So, needless to say, I ate heartily at Ure, the first time I had done so in quite some time. My partner brought me some more local baked goods and creamy coffee drinks, and I probably put down over a thousand calories while sitting there. Section 4. Ure to Grouse Gulch, Mile 58 There's no doubt about it, the climb out of Ure was an absolute beast. When I left the station, my partner walked with me through the town streets until I hopped back onto the single-track trail. The following section was particularly frustrating as there were quite a few ups and downs that just seemed unnecessary. Eventually, I did climb up to the highway and then over to the start of the Bear Creek Trail. It was right as I began the switchbacks up the heavily washed-out trail that I finally put my headlamp on. I knew that this trail would have some tricky spots, but I hadn't realized just how badly the recent rains had washed out some of the gullies and drainages. I felt really good in the cool evening air and pushed the pace quite a bit on this climb. In some ways, I was disappointed that it was getting dark as I was hoping to see the cliffside portions of the Bear Creek Trail in the light. I could tell, though, even in the dark, that there were portions where there were sheer drop-offs just off to my right. The trail was one of those that was very obviously built right into the side of the vertical rock wall. It was intense and got the heart pumping quite a bit, but with it being dark, it was easy to forget sometimes. After over an hour of climbing, the trail finally pulled away from the cliff edge and began weaving up to the higher basin and towards treeline. Despite the 5,000 feet of total gain, this climb seemed to go by fast. Maybe it was spending time in Ure, or maybe it was that both Travis and my partner would be waiting for me at the Grouse Gulch station, but I was definitely feeling eager to keep moving. Treeline came quicker than I expected, and the stars were most definitely out in full force. There is actually a small, remote aid station located about a thousand feet below Engineer Pass, and it gave me a nice break in the climb. I don't remember exactly how long I stayed at the station, but it seemed like I was in and out relatively quickly. I remember I didn't eat much, though, which did come back to haunt me. I suppose I figured since I'd eaten so much at Ure, I didn't really need to eat that much. This was definitely not the case, as I had easily burned a thousand calories on the climb already. What this all resulted in was a very slow final thousand-foot climb up to the pass, and then an even slower descent down to Grouse on what should have been very runnable roads. Quite simply, I was bonking hard going over the pass, and it wasn't until I made it to Grouse that I was finally able to recover. As I made my way down the jeep road descent from the pass to the Grouse station, I looked up at one point and saw a headlamp coming up towards me. I thought to myself, I wonder if this is Travis coming up to meet me. So I yelled out, Travis, is that you? Who else would it be, I hear. Excellent. It's so good to see you. I'm definitely bonking, but Handy's is going to be awesome. 
we rolled into the Grouse Gulch station and he ran ahead to my camper van to wake my partner up. I felt bad that we had to wake her from her nap, but was excited to see her and got some more delicious food. She heated up some veggie chili for me and it was exactly what I needed. I chugged more drinks, ate some mac and cheese, and of course put down the chili. It was probably my favorite aid station break of the entire race. Section 5, Grouse Gulch to Sherman Aid, Mile 72. We left the aid station about 20 minutes later, ready to hammer the climb up Handy's Peak. I warned Travis, who also happens to live at 9,000 feet, that I'd be slow once over 12,000. I hate slowing pacers down, but he didn't seem to care. He said he was just thrilled to be out on the trails, climbing a spectacular mountain through the night with me. I don't remember exactly what time we started the climb, but some quick math estimates put us reaching the actual summit of Handy's right before sunrise. I had never been on a 14er at sunrise, so we definitely looked forward to seeing a beautiful pink mountain sunrise sky from 14,000 feet. There were many times over the years that I could have summited Handy's knocking out one of my 14ers. It is considered one of the easier ones to climb. Despite this, though, I never actually did climb it, as I had made a promise to myself that the day that I did climb it would be the day while I was on the Hard Rock 100 course. Sure enough, that day was today. On the climb, Travis and I traded a whole slew of stories. He told me what's been going on with his family and his new house that he's building. I rehashed updates about my job and various bits of research I've been focusing on. It was so good to just have company on the climb, and it made the entire section go by so much faster. Once over 12,000 feet, I did have to stop a fair amount of times to catch my breath, but actually did much better with Travis there. The course takes you over American Pass first at about 13,000 feet, but then you drop down into the American Basin a few hundred feet before finally climbing back up over 14,000 feet to the actual summit of Handy's. I had forgotten about this little down and up, so managed to get a little discouraged as we were dropping down into the American Basin. I suppose I had convinced myself that the climb up to the American Pass was Handy's itself. Instead, as we topped out on the pass, I could see the distant headlamps a few miles across the basin, making a switchbacked line up to the actual summit. It just seemed like they were so many miles away, despite being only two. Time continued to tick by as we made our way around the basin and up towards the final push to Handy's. Sure enough, our timing was spot on. We crested the final hundred feet of Handy's right as the stars were being washed out by a perfectly pink pre-dawn sky. On the summit, I sat for a long time eating some snacks and just gazing at the indescribable view in all directions. It was absolutely stunning and something I will never forget. We were the only two on the summit at that moment, except for a photographer who was also snapping some photos of the sky. I wish I could track that guy down and get a picture of that morning. The descent down from Handy's was slower than I'd hoped. My running was more of a hobbled power hike. We didn't make great time on the descent, but I was content to watch the sun rise through it and continue my conversations with Travis nonetheless. He was eager to meet back up with his wife and kids at the Sherman Aid Station and I was just happy that the most difficult parts of the course were behind me, at least I thought. 
we eventually popped out of the woods right at the trailhead for Sunshine and Red Cloud Peaks at what is now known as the Burroughs Park Aid Station. I guess this station is somewhat new from a race perspective, but was honestly one of my favorite. They were all decked out in 80s prom-theme attire, looking like they were straight out of 16 candles. Travis and I both ate heartily and then made for the final four-mile run down the road to the primary Sherman aid station. We did run those four miles down to Sherman, but it was never really consistent. I was still not eating enough and just not getting into a good groove. Still, I was continuing to move and moving well for the most part. I wasn't having any major difficulties or blowouts other than just feeling really sapped. Section 6, Shermanade to Maggie Gulch, Mile 86 When we rolled into the large Sherman station, I opted to take a little extra time sorting my drop bag, eating some more food, and thanking Travis and his family. From Sherman on, I'd be alone again. In some ways, I was sad to be heading out alone, but I was also content with the thought of it just being me and the course again. I knew that the climb up from Sherman eventually would cross the Colorado Trail near Cataract Lake, and then again up on Pole Pass. This was one of the few sections I actually remember from my CT through hike 10 years ago, so I was looking forward to seeing it in the daylight. I said goodbye to Travis and reluctantly began the next climb up to the lake. Thankfully, this climb would only be about 2,500 feet of gain. This seemed like nothing after having climbed up out of Ure earlier. Despite a full rest and refuel, though, it didn't take long in that climb to start feeling sapped again. The sun was out in full, and I realized quickly that I no longer had my full-brim sun hat to keep me shaded. This climb was tough, but thankfully it went fairly quickly and didn't really feature much in the way of steep sections. I was above treeline in no time and traversing a high meadow over to the high point at Cataract Lake. Once I crested, I really began to notice the direct sun and heat. At one point, I huddled under a copse of shrubs just to get a little shade and cool off, but it didn't really help. I did my best to jog on and off down the fairly easy trail towards the Pole Creek Aid Station, which actually came much quicker than I thought it would. This was probably one of the most impressive of all of the aid stations on the course, simply due to how remote it was. I didn't see any other runners along the stretch either, and having just spent hours with Travis, it was hard not to feel a little bit lonely. My spirits did lift when I reached the Pole Creek Station and I ate some warm soup. They told me that the climb up to Pole Pass was under a thousand feet of gain total from there and only a few miles and then I'd get to drop down into Maggie Gulch for some more aid. This just seemed like a nice, really doable small section to check off. Most of the segments at Hard Rock seem like such big endeavors, 14 or 16 miles in between. Hearing of a three to four mile stretch between aid over a pass seemed so small and easily parsable. I left the aid station with a new sense of purpose. Power hike up to the pass, avoid the early afternoon storms, and make my way over to Maggie Gulch. The hike up to the pass went incredibly quickly, and somehow again, for the second day, I managed to split the thunderstorms in half. Perhaps I'd make it through the entire race without really having any major rain or lightning scares. Once over the pass, I actually ran the short section down to Maggie Gulch, feeling relatively good and refreshed. I could see the runners leaving the station heading up the next climb, though, and my spirits dampened a bit. 
Leaving Maggie, it looked like I was going to have a beast of a climb. Just as I pulled into the aid station, the rains came and I had to put on my shell. It actually was a welcome change, though, as I was tired of the hot sun. I sat for several minutes eating and talking with the volunteers about the next climb. The good news is that the climb to the top would be less than 2,000 feet, but the bad news is that it marks the second highest point on the entire course. I knew it would be a struggle, but thankfully it was at least a shorter climb. As I sat there, it dawned on me that I had only about 15 miles left on the entire course and over 15 hours to do it. Pending some major disaster, it was looking like I was going to finish my first hard rock. Final segment, Maggie Gulch to the finish, 100 miles. Leaving the Maggie aid station, I thought somehow that I was going to hammer the climb. I had my game face on and began pushing hard. It didn't last very long, though, and after only about a thousand feet of climbing, I was already struggling again. The sun was back out at this point, and I was cooking on the mountainside. The climb up to Buffalo Boy Ridge is steep and exposed. I was thankful that there were no thunderstorms, but definitely struggling. I recalled at this point a story that Travis had told me about this section of the course. He had said that when you climb out of the Maggie Station and get to Stony Pass, make sure to cross the road and don't turn left or right on it. It can be tricky. In my mind, this simply meant once I topped out on Buffalo Boy Ridge to not turn, but instead go straight. So when I did finally top out on the ridge, I was a little confused as this road that Travis spoke of still seemed so far away. But I made sure to follow the trail straight and proceed. In my mind, I had made it over what Travis referred to as Stony Pass and was on my descent now down to the final Cunningham aid station. This was entirely incorrect, however, and led to what I considered to be the absolute lowest point of my race. As I began the descent off of Buffalo Ridge, I thought I was descending to Cunningham. But as I rounded the side of the mountain and noticed the dirt road coming up to meet me, I realized I was only now getting to what Travis called Stony Pass. I looked left and right and immediately realized what Travis was saying about how it could be easy to turn down the road. But then I looked across the road and saw what would absolutely deflate me for the next 45 minutes. I looked up and saw that the trail climbed back up several hundred feet over what was obviously another pass, and it absolutely crushed my spirits. Even though the climb would only be a few hundred feet, somehow in my mind it seemed insurmountable. I hadn't realized that I was starting to fall off pretty badly, and this realization put me over the edge. I truly thought I was on the descent down to the last aid station and to my partner waiting for me, and instead, I was presented with another hot and miserable climb and another two miles of course. When I made it to the road, I mustered up enough energy to get me started on the climb up to the pass, but about halfway up, I lost it all. I sat down on a rock, stared up at the remaining few hundred feet of climb to the pass, and completely gave up. I sat on a rock for over 30 minutes, miserable and deflated, and unwilling to go on. It was a true pity party, and absolutely my lowest point of the race. 
I don't know why this order of seemingly small events had such an impact on me, but for whatever reason they did. I managed to force down some food, drink a little water, but I still wasn't ready to move. I was surprised that in all the time that I sat there, I never saw another runner go by. It was just me, the sun, and Stony Pass. After what seemed like an eternity, my mind finally began the necessary swing. I thought about where I was, mile 88 at the Hard Rock 100. I thought about the good weather and my partner waiting for me just a few miles ahead. I thought about making it to the finish line after 10 years of wanting it. I thought of a cold milkshake at the finish. And I slowly came back to life. I looked across the road to the hillside I had come down about 30 minutes prior and finally saw another runner pop over Buffalo Boy Ridge and start heading my way. This made me immediately remember that this was still a race, damn it, and I wasn't going to wallow on the mountainside and get passed by dozens of runners. So I got up, wiped off my brow, and forced myself up and over that pass. Once on the other side, it really was all downhill to Cunningham, the final aid station at mile 91. I had a new sense of urgency, and as I dropped down the mountainside, rather steeply I might add, I noticed the clouds were also brewing up nicely again. Near the bottom of this descent, I did fall hard on my backside and bruised my hip, but nothing debilitating. A quick brush off and I was off again towards the now visible station and crew vehicles. After what seemed like way more than 2,800 feet of descent, I did finally make it to the road and within a few hundred meters of the station. I slowed to a walk just as the rain started falling. As I approached the station, I saw my partner walking towards me. She could immediately tell that I wasn't in a good place. What's wrong, she asked. I'm just so tired. I shuffled inside the aid tent and sat down in a wonderful chair. My partner force-fed me every good food imaginable and I ate every bite. I drank an entire cold coffee drink, pancakes, mac and cheese, Gatorade, chocolate, just about everything you can imagine. I did slowly come back to life. It was at this point that large hail pellets started pelting the canvas roof of the station and it forced me to take a little extra longer to rest. The general consensus amongst the volunteers was that this late storm was a bit of an anomaly, but was passing quickly. It was weird to see a thunderstorm so late in the afternoon. It was already about 6 p.m. by this point. It did occur to me that pending some massive surge in my efforts, my hopes for a daylight finish were pretty much squashed. I'd likely be finishing after 9 p.m. Still, I'd thankfully get up and over the last climb before dark, and I was content with that. Eventually, the hail subsided and the skies cleared. My partner offered to pace me the last nine miles, but I told her I needed to do it alone. I had 2,700 feet of total gain left on the entire course a number that just seemed too good to be true. I said my goodbyes, crossed the creek, put my head down, and began the long climb up to the last pass, Little Giant. I watched methodically as my altimeter watch counted down my remaining gain. Soon I was above treeline and had less than a thousand feet to climb. My energy level was depleting exponentially fast, and before even reaching the pass, I was already stopping regularly to catch my breath and regroup. Once I was in the upper basin, though, and I could see the pass, it was as though a thousand-pound weight was lifted from my shoulders. 
I pushed as hard as I could up to the pass, and when I got there, my altimeter was still showing a few hundred feet to go. I had assumed this was another one of those false summit scenarios, so didn't get too excited just yet. Once on the other side, I started descending, and all the while I was thinking, great, I'm going down only to go back up again. But after descending about 300 feet and seeing that the trail far ahead was still descending, I finally started to admit the possibility that this could be the final descent. Could I have actually made it over the last high point on the course? It certainly seemed so. After a few hundred more feet of descent, I finally began celebrating the fact that I was heading down into Silverton, and I was ecstatic. And that, my friends, is when it all went haywire. After about a mile more of trail descent, the course drops you onto a high jeep road. Now, I knew that there would be a several-mile jeep road along this section, as other runners had told me about it. But I wasn't really clear on the details. So I began a steady-paced run down the road, thinking I was in the clear. Minutes went by, as did the miles. I wound through a couple of road switchbacks and all seemed to be looking good for a fast finish. As I rounded another switchback on the road, it gave me a view back up to the pass, and that's when I noticed that somehow in the 15 minutes that I was running down the road, massive thunderstorm clouds had formed over the mountain. It was now after 8 p.m. at night, so this was a bit bizarre. Usually the quick pop-up storms are mid-afternoon phenomena. In the time that it took me to complete that single switchback, the rains already began falling on me, and visible lightning began cracking up on the mountains. I felt bad for anyone still cresting the pass itself. But then I came to an intersection in the road and realized there was no course marking. I had no idea which way I was supposed to go, and I couldn't remember what the map looked like in this part. It seemed like I should continue down the road to the right, but I wasn't 100% sure. A horrible feeling settled into my gut. Did I take a wrong turn coming down from the pass? There were no trail markings that I could remember seeing for a long time and no sign of other runners. Damn. The panic set in like a wave. I immediately began hiking back up the road, convinced I had missed a turnoff somewhere despite being told that there was a road run on this stretch. I cursed myself multiple times for not studying the course better before the race. How could I have missed a turn? I was watching so carefully. Or was I, though? I had been thinking so much about the finish that I probably just ran right past a turn and didn't even notice it. I hiked back up three switchbacks when I finally saw a yellow shirt of the next runner coming down towards me. Thank God, I thought. I was right. Okay, okay, everything's gonna be fine. I only lost about ten minutes. No big deal. I waited about five minutes for the runner to catch back up to me with his pacer. When they got to me, I immediately asked them, Hey guys, we're on course, right? I was pretty sure that we run this road but then down here there's a split in the road and there's no trail marking. Well, it turns out that not only were these runners both from Japan and non-native English speakers, but they were also both new to the course. They told me in broken English that they were coming down the road only because they had seen me come down the road earlier. So not only was I potentially off course, 
but I could have led other runners off course as well. One of the runners pulled out written instructions and hands them to me. I read them carefully, and it does seem like we are on the course. As I'm standing there trying to decide whether to just keep descending or to wait for more runners to show up, the lightning starts cracking louder and louder. While I'm definitely a bit on edge from it, these two guys were absolutely terrified. I could tell that they were frightened beyond belief and didn't care where we went as long as it was away from the lightning. We ran together back down to the intersection and simply made the command decision to go right and keep running down. And we ran and ran for what seemed like miles. Still no course markings. I was 100% convinced by this point that we were off course. The lightning was getting louder and closer and the rains were getting so heavy now that it was actually flooding the road. I was worried there was going to be slides and washouts ahead on the road. I did eventually round a corner and found a local camping beside his truck. I stopped and asked him in a very exhausted and defeated voice, Hey, have you seen any runners go by here over the past few hours? He responds, Oh yeah, they've been going by like every five to ten minutes. Some kind of hard rock race or something? My eyes perked up. So you've actually seen runners going by on this road right here? Yes, that's right. A whole mess of runners. I wanted so bad to believe him, but I was still struggling to. Why were there no trail markers? The other two guys that I had been running with were so terrified by the lightning and rain at this point that they opted to hunker down at this local's campsite and literally crawl under his pickup truck. I rounded a turn in the road and finally saw it. A lone trail marker precariously perched at the edge of the road. All at once, a wave of stress left my body and I was finally able to relax. I was annoyed that I let myself get so wrapped up in the belief that I was off course. I was annoyed that I didn't just follow the road to begin with. I was annoyed that this whole experience meant that I lost over 45 minutes. And I was now getting drenched in torrential rains and dodging lightning strikes. I was back on my own at this point, and the lightning was so close now that I was seeing it and hearing it at the same time, and I was still well over 11,000 feet of elevation. This was the first time in the entire race that I truly felt in danger, and I was running scared. The few miles along this road were very likely my fastest miles during the entire race. I just kept thinking to myself that it would be my dumb luck that I had somehow managed to make it through 96 miles on the course, and yet I was going to be struck by lightning just a few miles from the finish line. I had begun to use my headlamp at this point, but it was essentially useless as the rains were so heavy that all the lamp was doing was lighting up the drops in front of my face. I felt like I was somehow running through hyperspace. As I continued to drop down the road, I would occasionally see a random trail marker, so I at least knew I was still on course. Eventually, I did make it to a trail turnoff and began a stretch of single track, and only then finally felt safe from the lightning. It was now completely dark, and I had no sense of where I really was, and despite being only a couple of miles to the finish, I felt like I was nowhere near the town of Silverton. 
Eventually, I did make it out of the main rain cloud, so I at least had a little time to dry off. The final stretch in the woods, while only about two miles long, seemed to go on for an eternity, without any sign that I was nearing town. I watched as the minutes ticked away on my watch and my hopes of a sub-40-hour finish fizzled away. Just as I had made peace with the fact that a sub-40-hour finish wasn't possible, I came up on a sign that read, One Mile to Go. I was shocked by this as I hadn't even seen any hints of town yet. How could I be only one mile from the finish? Did I take a weird turn again somewhere? I looked down at my watch and had 12 minutes still to make it in under 40 hours. So I figured, I might as well go for it even if it isn't true. I picked up my meager hiking pace to an honest run and started moving quickly along the trail. Within just two minutes, I popped out of the woods and was heading down onto a main road. And just like that, and without any indication, I was now on the edge of town. I had no idea I was anywhere even near Silverton. When I passed the half-mile mark, I still had six minutes. It was going to be close. I pushed even harder, and with about three minutes to go, I ran the two blocks along Reese Street and towards the well-lit finish area by the school and was overcome by a sense of complete joy. After all of those literal and metaphorical ups and downs over the past 40 hours, all those stunning vistas and mountain passes, all the beautiful mountain lakes and rocky switchbacks, all those unforgettable miles along Handys with Travis and the fun miles with Blake early on, all those moments feeling completely defeated and those moments feeling completely unstoppable. I was now in sight of the rock, that damn rock that I refused so many times to touch until it was my own finish, that rock that I thought about for over ten years, that rock that I witnessed so many others kiss during the previous two hard rock runnings while I was inside grilling food at the aid station. That rock that I wanted so badly to rest my head upon. I turned the final corner, saw my partner cheering for me, ran up the chute, dropped to my knees, and finally rested my head upon that rock. And it was just as I imagined it would be. Sublime. Oh, and my final time? 39 hours, 59 minutes. Thank you everyone for following along as we revisited my journey through the San Juan Mountains during my running of the 2018 Hard Rock 100. In the next episode, we'll spend some time in Arizona as we revisit a multi-day, several hundred mile scavenger hunt event I participated in on my adventure motorcycle. Take care everyone and be safe out there. <laughs> <laughs>